Welcome back, Cal and listeners. This is Methodical Millions, episode 32. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in today. So last episode, we covered IPOs and SPACs, mostly about how companies go public. But I think we should cover the purpose of it a little bit more in detail. So Cal, why specifically would a company go public, I suppose, is to raise money? What are the goals there? And can you tell us a bit about how that works? Yes. When a company is private, even though it could be growing, there is a limited amount of capital that it can raise. Even though it has a lot of interest, there's so much money that could be raised based on that. Reason being some certain high net worth individuals, angel investors, or certain companies can partner with the private company there. So it limits the amount of capital that could be raised. So what a company does is when they're private, they try to go public in the sense that they start an initial public offering. So they issue their shares in the market for a certain price, hoping to raise a certain amount of capital. So let's say they would raise 100 million shares at $10 a share. So that's $1 billion worth raised. Basically, that's how it works. So they raise that capital and the valuation of the stock price in the beginning gets estimated by certain banks and experts that would talk to the company and tell them that we can possibly help you raise that capital based on your valuation, your revenues, all that stuff. And we expect that when you go public, you'll be able to sell this many shares at this certain price. So that's basically how the company starts and raises that capital. And then they can use that capital towards growing their business. Yeah. So I heard of a term, I think it's called doing an IPO tour. So is it true that an investment bank like Goldman Sachs would go and place a valuation on the IPO? And then these shares, would they be bought pre-listing? So let's say Methodical Millions is going public, ticker MM. So if we're raising at a $100 million valuation, are those shares going to be pre-sold? And then when the company goes public, let's say tomorrow at market open and the shares start trading, is that raised capital already pre-assigned? And let's say the shares jump to $12 instead of 10 or maybe dip to eight. How does that actual process work? Are the shares already purchased at the exact moment the company IPOs or are they dispersing the shares over a week or two or a month depending on demand? That's a very good question. I actually don't know 100% for sure how the ins and outs of the IPO works. But the idea of it is, yes, basically, the shares get sold at market open the day of the IPO. And usually, when a company IPOs, there's quite a lot of activity, excitement, a lot of volume, because there'd be a lot of buying, especially if it's an anticipated company. Do they sell it all at the day of the IPO or disperse it over a week or a few days? I'm actually not entirely sure. Are they owned prior to the IPO by other investors? I actually don't even know that either, to be honest. But I do believe that I might have come across something that, yes, you can be assigned some shares or something like that. I have to look into that. That's a good question. But having said that, the idea of an IPO is 
from the company's perspective themselves, they have a target of reaching a certain valuation and they want to raise that certain capital from that initial public offering. And I don't think it matters to them too much in the beginning how these are sold as long as they can hit their target or possibly even exceed that. Yeah, I thought it would be a good question because it's nice to learn the nuances of how it works so that the next time I see an IPO, I kind of have a better idea of how that works. And to answer your question about are there any pre-sold, if you look at the early inception of a company, there almost always was money raised at some point. And there are likely still private investors who are holding on to shares even right through the IPO process. So if someone owned shares of Uber five years before it went public, I suppose, depending on the size of the holdings, they could use a private broker to unload a certain amount of the position, let's say a couple million dollars in cash out. So I guess in the history of the company, there would have been investors for sure. And then I think the IPO is essentially the at market spot price. So that is the launch price. And then who knows what happens from there? A lot of famous companies like Facebook and even Uber, I know have crashed at IPO. And if you hold through those swings, I know people have seen a bounce back and return over the long term. So just another reason why I'm more of a long term guy. I don't believe in panic selling or trying to time in the micro seconds. I think it could get dangerous and you can miss out on potential gains. Cal, so what happens after an IPO, a company settles two to five years in, and what do they do if they want to raise more money? A few things they can do because now they're public. The shares they sold originally are sold in the closed market. So let's say two, three years in, if you're a private investor and you just want to buy some shares of some company that's already in the market, then what you do is you go buy the shares and you're buying shares from another investor. You're buying it from someone else who's willing to sell. But if you're a company that would want to raise more capital, what you do is you go back to the public market and you can do what they call a secondary offering. Now, a secondary offering is quite simple. It's self-explanatory in the sense that all you do is you can offer more shares in the market at what the stock price would be trading at the time of the secondary offering. So let's say you issue a million shares at $500, then you just raised $500 million. Now, the challenge with that is that when you do a secondary offering, now there are more shares available in the market for your company. What that does is it dilutes the value of the stock. So usually the share price drops from 500 to 450, for example, because now there is more supply than demand at that time of issuance. So it drops the price of the stock. Yeah, I'm just on Investopedia and just going back to the initial question. So it does look like you got it right. So IPOs typically happen when you want to raise a billion dollars or more, I guess probably because there's not too many. VCs, with the exception of SoftBank, who can probably throw around a billion dollars. So you almost need to access a wider base of investors. So whether they're retail or bigger endowments, you want access to the most amount of investors. There is a pre-sale done by the underwriters. So they might check to see who's interested in the deal. And the IPO price 
at time of market open will be set. And then whether it's algos or the rest of the investing pool, the price will likely fluctuate and supply and demand will dictate the price from there. I just came across something interesting. So Alphabet, which Cal, I know you're a fan of, they did a Dutch auction. So apparently that is a direct listing. And what happens is there's not a specific price set, which still doesn't answer my question. I still want to know now, how does a direct listing differ from an IPO? Because as far as I know, once an IPO happens at market open, you're back to buying and selling demand anyway. So I guess that's a research question for a future episode. So Cal, we talked about secondary offerings. Is there anything else I'm missing? I've heard of bonds before. I don't really understand them that well. And sometimes you'll hear of companies issuing bonds. And I'm assuming that's also when they're public. What's the difference there? And why is that important? To put it simply, it's a way for the company to borrow money. When you issue shares in the market, you're selling part of your company to investors. Once you get that money, they don't have to repay that money back because they sold a piece of their company to the public. So that's the price that investors were willing to pay to be shareholders of the company. Now, with corporate bonds, when a company needs to raise capital, but let's say for a certain project or for expansion, they can possibly issue bonds. When you go to the bank and you borrow money, you agree on a term, let's say on a five-year term, you borrow $10,000 and you make installments over the five-year period based on a predetermined interest rate and payment method and all of that. So with bonds, it's a similar way. So the company would basically issue a bond certificate and the investors would buy that bond. So they would pay the corporation an amount of money that they know they will get back. Let's say if they issue a five-year and 10-year bond. So someone would buy a five-year bond. After five years, you would get your money back plus interest at a predetermined interest rate that the company was willing to pay. You can sell the bond as a bondholder, but the value of the bond would fluctuate as well based on many different variables, maybe the risk or what interest rates would be at the time and all of that. Now that I actually think about it, I did have some exposure to bonds as a kid. So pretty sure my dad had bought myself and my brother and sister, a bond each for $100. And I think it was probably a 10-year time horizon. And I remember it's almost like trying to open your Christmas presents two weeks before Christmas. I just couldn't wait to get my money for some reason. And it was like the most exciting thing. But the anticlimactic thing for me was I remember finally cashing out and I was probably a teenager at that point. And I think I ended up with 115 instead of 100. I remember thinking, wow, that was not really worth it. So I guess it comes down to how risky do you want to be? And if it was $100 million, 20 points isn't bad at all. I don't think anyone's complaining about that. So Cal, what are your thoughts on raising money pre-IPO? Have you heard of anything interesting? Or does that process really differ from the IPO process? For the most part, there are different ways as well. For a private company to raise money, one would be borrowing money from the bank. If it's a startup, then you'd go to some friends and family trying to either get them in to partner with you. But as you grow, it gets to a point where 
money you can borrow from friends and family would be peanuts compared to what the company is going. I think you might have a bit more to say there, but you go to angel investors. Maybe you can tell us more about that, John. Yeah, you said a good point, which is family and friends won't likely give you the amount of capital you need throughout different stages. So I think that's a very smart point, which is every step of fundraising has different needs as a business. And every level of funding gives you different access to amounts of capital. So anything from private to public to family and friends to angels and VCs and different rounds and round sizes. And of course, I would say there is going to be some overlap. So an angel might drop you a 25 to 100K check and you might raise millions of dollars in a round. And then you might see a VC who might throw a million dollar check themselves, but could be part of a $100 million raise. So the thing about raising money, I've always heard that it's a bit of a roadshow. So I think the saying is the second you raise money, your goal is to start raising again for the next one. So it's almost like you're flying a plane and working on many things at once. So as a founder entrepreneur, you got to keep your eye on the next goalpost. And assuming you hit those milestones of growth, and typically that would be more customers, more revenue to increase your valuation and to grow as a company, and then eventually raise more money again. So there are companies actually who may skip fundraising. So I heard of Calm.com, the popular meditation app. They raised one round I think at $5 million, which is probably the most common angel investing style round. And the cool story about that company is, I don't know if any of you listening have tried it, but my sister's a big fan and it's a legitimate company. They do meditation. So anything from stories to sounds of the ocean. I remember listening to those as a kid on cassette tapes and they made it into an app. And what did they do? They increased the catalog, made the app look good. I think they got celebrity guest speakers on there if you're into that. And back to subscription businesses. So they actually charge money per year. And just like the Netflix model, I think they're making huge amounts of money. And the funny part is apparently at the time, they got a lot of no's. So no one wanted to invest. And that's exactly where the term angel comes from is when everyone says no, someone with money believes in you. So it's the term that is about saving the company, quote unquote, because If you have $5,000 in your retail flower business and you want to grow, you're going to dump that money in to, let's say, find more customers. But what happens if you spent that money and your customer base is flat or down, all of a sudden you have no cash savings and your cash is really tight. So you're going to start burning through it. And that is why a lot of startups will have something called runway. So maybe six months, 12 months, 18 months of runway until you run out of money. So There's a technical reason why businesses fail. It's not because they're necessarily bad or good. It could be about timing. It could be about how good the product is. And it's a fine balance. So let's say I raised a million dollars for my app and I have 10,000 customers and I want to grow another 10x. What happens when I run out of money? I'm going to need more money. Let's use this as an example. I want to borrow money from Cal. Cal likes me. I'm a nice guy. What if I want to borrow money again and again and again? All of a sudden, he might think otherwise. So You can't go back to your same investors and say, hey, I used up all your money. Give me another million dollars. It doesn't work that way. So if you don't have results where your company's growing after that and the money is working as a fuel to grow your business, no one's going to give you that round. It's called a bridge round and it's just to keep you going so they don't lose their initial investment. But sometimes your valuation might get cut down. So I'll use an example very topical with COVID. 
let's say you're doing a restaurant business or a theme of restaurant cuisines, and there's nothing unique there that will likely make it survive, especially when there's government mandates to close businesses. So you've got those headwinds there and there's no customers. Or let's say you're starting a travel business today as well. Although perhaps if it was a local travel business, that might be an opportunity for you. You might pivot. But if you're saying to your investors, I'm going to do the same thing and keep earning money, they likely won't reinvest. So raising money while growing, you have to think about, okay, well, how am I going to pitch this to the bigger fish, the VC instead of the angel? And what's my vision to go from a $100 million valuation to a billion? And every time you go along each phase, you have to be able to pitch that to investors and say, okay, Cal's a VC. He's going to give me $10 million. How are they going to 3x their money? How are they going to 10x their money? Because other than that, it's not worth it for them. So each stage of investment has a different risk appetite. It has a different need. It has a different growth rate. If things grew forever, you can do the math. It would be bigger than the size of the universe. So exponential growth is typically not sustainable. But if you can grow 3x a year for the first five years, that's fantastic. That's how you get to become unicorn status, a billion dollar company. And then maybe you slow to like a 0.5x. And that's what Tesla has been doing for the last probably two, three years. And that compounding is still there. So you're growing 50% a year after a 10-year-old company worth $400 billion is still going to turn into a couple trillion or so. And the bet is still there. Capturing that value still makes sense. And people betting with larger pocketbooks, just the sheer magnitude of investing $100 million and 3xing it is still very, very good. So it depends who your audience is. Who do you want to raise money from? And what is your goal? How will you grow? What will you do with the money? All those kinds of things. So that's how I'd start to look at it is, are you worth the money? Do you have a plan for it to grow? Who is your target audience? Go find them. Go learn up on who they've invested in. Have they invested in your competitors? Maybe there's a conflict of interest or... Are they risk takers in exactly the app space? Are they tech investors? Are they, do they have experience growing their own startup? So not only do you want to raise money at a valuation that A, people will lend you, so you can't overvalue your company, but B, is the investor someone who will have a non-dollar value add to your business that could help you get out of a tough situation or might know people, might give you some good higher ideas. So let's say you need a grow from a three-person company to 10. All these little factors will play a role into how you should set up your term sheet into accepting the money. Cal, that's essentially how that works. So that's a high-level view of what that looks like. And just to actually give an example, the most famous one I know of today, why is angel investing so unique? And why isn't everyone an angel investor? Because getting that kind of amount of money in the first place, you're an outlier if you're in the top 1%. You have hundreds of thousands of dollars to spend or millions. And B, I think earning wealth is not commonplace for a lot of people. They don't believe it'll happen to them and they wouldn't know what to do with it because they just say, okay, I'm going to lose it all or I don't want to risk it and perhaps throw it in bonds or keep it in a bank account or squander it. So it takes a unique personality, I think, to see the opportunity and to want to grow the world. But I think it's very fulfilling and it's a value add to society and to yourself. I think it makes you smarter if you learn about it and you're around smart people. To me, it's a no-lose situation. You can't put a value on that. So back to the most famous example of, I think it was Jeff Bezos got 60 no's before he raised his 
first couple investments. And I don't know the specifics, but he used to deliver his own packages. So this was very much vision and not yet a business, but he needed money. So I don't know what the terms were, but I'm sure his company's absolutely not valued at a trillion, trillion and a half at that point. It's worth in the single millions. So every company has its stages and raising capital requirements that will change over time. I think getting to know what those are and merging them into your own plan as you grow, I think is the right approach. That's right. I just want to add to that. Actually, even Bill Gates as well, I think he tried to speak to 100 people at first when he first started, and 10 were willing to listen, and then two or three ended up going with it. And look at Microsoft now. So same thing with Bezos when he spoke with his parents trying to raise some money, and he actually told them Amazon was very likely going to fail, but he still had a case and he still went with it. And even though it succeeded quite a bit in the beginning, it didn't really boom as big as it is today until relatively recently. So like you said, raising capital, I think it's quite the skill. I personally cannot wait for the day that I can become an angel investor myself. I think the opportunity to put your money where you see potential, there are a lot of brilliant ideas and great opportunities out there even today. I'm quite excited for the day that comes. Yeah, you got it. It's definitely something I think about a lot and I follow very closely. So awesome, Cal. I'm glad we covered that. Raising capital is something that if you're going to be an entrepreneur or you're involved in investing, it's good to know what those stages look like and just get a good pulse on it. And if you are serious about understanding the future growth potential, all of that stuff matters. So with that said, let's wrap up today's episode. That was Methodical Millions, episode 32. If you'd like to follow future episodes, you can find us at methodicalmillions.com or info at methodicalmillions.com for episode feedback. Thanks, everyone.